Welcome to the Governance Freffy podcast, brought to you in conjunction with the Skills and Education Group. I'm delighted you can join myself, Fiona Chalk, as I discuss with Stephanie Mason effective governance from an audit point of view. Stephanie is Head of Further Education, Skills and Academies at RSM and is a specialist in education sector issues, consultancy, audit and compliance, risk management and governance. She has worked in the sector for 30 years and is a regular commentator on sector issues. Stephanie is RSM's lead partner for delivering funding assurance reviews for the ESFA and MCAs and was a contributor to the 2021 Data Integrity Guidance and delivered significant network comment on this topic. Stephanie's interest in governance has led her to completing a master's degree with her dissertation on governance aspects of college mergers. She has now started a PhD looking at influences on college governance and whether it is fit for purpose. So welcome, Stephanie. Thank you, Fiona. Thank you for inviting me to speak to you. So to get us underway then, Stephanie, can you explain what we're referring to when we talk about audit or should I say audits? Because there's quite a few, isn't there? Yes, indeed, there are. An audit itself can mean something different to, to lots of different people. So it tends to, we tend to talk about internal audit or external audit, but it can actually just be the audit trail and evidence that a, that a process has been followed. So it does mean quite a lot of different things. But in the sector, we're very much used to talking about external audit, internal audits, um, the SFA funding audits. But then don't forget there's also health and safety data audits, things which have nothing to do with finance. So certainly the sector is subject to an awful lot of audits. And I think unpicking some of those, um, external audits, every college has to have external audit, um, and external audit probably is what the man on the street, as it were, recognises most as being audit in terms of the audit that looks at the financial statements and the numbers. So as external auditors, we would be appointed to provide an opinion on whether the annual accounts in all material respects, and that word materiality is important, give a true and fair view of the college, its balance sheet, its income and expenditure you know, for the year. We also are asked in the sector to provide an assurance report on regularity. So that's about how the funds have been spent and how they've been spent in accordance with what they should have been spent in. But our appointment as external auditors is for the corporation. Um, so we are appointed by the college, by the corporation, and in that sense, we are part of the college's corporate governance because we are their part. We are part of um, the structure that provides assurance to the board that it's meeting its duties and it's got an appropriate assurance framework in place. What we don't do as external auditors, though, is make any is give you any opinion on governance. What we would typically do is look at the, your statement on corporate governance that you put in the front end of your accounts and consider whether that's consistent with the accounts and what we know about you as an organisation. But as external auditors, we're not specifically giving you an opinion on governance. And I think quite often people think we are. Uh, in terms of that opinion on governance, that's something which fits more readily with your internal auditors. So most colleges in the sector do still have internal auditors, although there is no longer that mandatory requirement to do so, and that was taken away some time ago. But internal auditors are there to provide assurance on the adequacy and effectiveness of your framework of controls, particularly around risk management, governance. And again, they're there for the corporation and part, a part of that assurance framework that the corporation has in place to get assurances. Internal audit can operate in different ways. And I think going back in history a little bit, 
when the sector is required to have internal auditors, um, those internal auditors were also required to give what we tend to refer to as being a head of internal audit opinion. And in giving that head of internal audit opinion, and a full opinion, it was up to the internal auditors to make sure they had done sufficient work to be able to give that opinion on the effectiveness of controls, risk management and governance. Um, since there's no longer been that mandatory requirement for internal audit, whilst most colleges have maintained the function, there are different approaches to it. So not everyone is asking for that full opinion. Um, so it's important to understand as governors what you're actually getting from your internal auditors and whether you are actually getting the assurance that you think you're getting. Um, but certainly in terms of giving you assurance on governance, it sits better with the internal auditors. I think that's a really important point you make there around actually who's the client. It's mm. the corporation, it's the auditor's client, not college management. So that, I think that's an important distinction to make. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, and then the other set of auditors, I thought it was useful to comment on now, um, partly because I spent, as, as you said in your, in your introduction, quite a lot of the last year commentating quite a lot on, on this one, is the SFA Funding Assurance Review. Um, generally called an audit, I prefer to use the technical language um, of calling it the Funding Assurance Review. Um, so that is, the SFA, in that sense, the SFA is the client, although it may well be a firm carrying out the reviews. Their objectives are slightly different. So their objectives really are about looking across the whole sector um, and understanding that providers are managing the risks around the SFA funding. They're using public funds appropriately and for the purposes they were intended. But in terms of what they're looking at, they pick a, yes, they pick a sample of providers, so colleges and ITPs. But what they're looking for, though, is what is that sample telling them about the whole of the sector and the error rate in funding across the sector? So what we, what we typically find, and certainly more recently we've typically found, that all of your, your external auditors, your internal auditors, your SFA auditors, may well all be looking at the same thing, um, particularly around MIS, around the ILR, but they're looking at it for different reasons and therefore looking at it in different degrees of detail. And I think that has been quite hard for the sector to understand because some approaches to that have changed in the last year. Yeah, so it, what is maybe seen as a duplication isn't at all because, as you say, they're coming, the different audiences are coming from different points of view. They are. There is scope for some reliance of one set of auditors on another. Um, but that is, obviously, that needs to be looked at carefully, needs to be worked on with the, you know, with the board, with the audit committee, um, and there may well then need to be some levels of reperformance and so on. But that is something that you might want to talk about later in terms of auditors working together and, and relying on each other. Okay, lovely. Thanks, Stephanie, uh, for giving us that clarity on the different aspects um, of audit. Now, we know it's a regulatory requirement that all colleges have an audit committee. Um, I wonder if you could just go over for us what some of their key functions are, please. Yes. So the requirement is set out in a lot of different places. But probably the best place for the sector to look is actually what is in the audit code of practice, um, which is renewed every year. And there are some additional notes and guidance attached to it as well, which is useful to look at, especially if you're, if you're new to this area. Um, but basically, the audit committee must, and there are quite a few musts in terms of what the audit committee must do, advise the corporation on the adequacy and effectiveness of the assurance framework. The audit committee must play a robust role in good stewardship and risk management. 
Um, and the committee advises and supports the corporation in explaining its annual accounts, measures taken to ensure it has fulfilled its responsibilities. Um, what it doesn't do in the sector is spend much time looking at the numbers. And I think, and that is something that new audit committee members who've come from a more corporate background do find quite hard to understand initially that actually in the audit committee for colleges, it is very much about processes, systems, controls, risk management. It's not really about the numbers. So whilst they're looking at the financial statements, it's looking at the financial statements um, in terms of what it's telling us about the controls, what it's telling us really in the front end, as it were, rather, rather than the numbers. Okay, that's helpful. And obviously, a key part of that work then is the production of the annual report um, for the corporation. Um, and that's, you know, that's produced by the audit committee, but the governance professional has quite a role in that as well in supporting the audit committee. Do you see any sort of best practice for governance professionals in this part? Um, I think, well, I think in terms of the governance professional, absolutely, they've got the role in, in supporting the audit committee. Um, but I would also like to emphasise that the audit committee must take an active role and not a passive role in that. Um, and I do have conversations with some governance professionals who sometimes find it a little bit challenging to get their audit committees too involved. Yeah, that's a really good point, And thank you for emphasising that. So for an audit committee, you know, it's part of their role to do that annual report, um, but to function optimally and carry out the responsibilities that you've just mentioned, what, in your view, are some of the fundamental must-dos and are there any frameworks to support the committee in their work? So, I mean, firstly, is having terms of reference. The clearly defined current terms of reference. Um, not surprisingly, there are examples in the audit code of practice. And so I would suggest reviewing and refreshing every year because there are always those annual tweaks in the audit code of practice. So certainly in terms of the governance professional looking at your cycle of meetings and so on, make sure that it's on there every year to look at those terms of reference and refresh them. Then it's really important that everybody on the audit committee has a proper under a proper and really good understanding of the college, um, its, its strategy, its operating environment, its community, um, its key risks, its risk appetite. And whilst the audit committee isn't specifically focused on the numbers, you know, the audit committee members have got to understand the financial position of the college and how that is affecting its operations. And I th that, at one level, might sound obvious, but actually it's really difficult for the audit committee to achieve that um, because they are, you know, they're not management. They're, they're volunteers do, you know, doing this part-time, so it is really difficult to achieve that full understanding. But I have found that actually that can be particularly hard sometimes for audit committee members compared to perhaps the finance committee members, the resource committee members or some members of the main board. And I think this is because it's quite often colleges find it difficult to recruit audit committee members. So often we, find, often we have co-opted members onto the audit committee who might be local accountants, local banker or somebody with an interest in, in finance and controls co-opted onto the audit committee. That's absolutely fine and, and, and is a good way of bringing that expertise and skills into the audit committee. But where I found that that hasn't worked is if that co-opted member then hasn't had shared with them everything that the full board members might have. Because then whilst they may bring their understanding of processes, systems, finance, they haven't got that understanding of the organisation. 
I think that's such a good point. I mean, if we look back, and you've probably, as well as I have, studied plenty of uh, corporate governance failings, one of the commonalities is a lack of understanding of board members about the context that the organisation mm-hmm. is operating in. And I think that's a really valid point, that when we're bringing co-opted members on, and I share with you, if we're looking at co-opted members, usually they are on the audit committee. Actually, the onboarding and the induction of those members is as important as if they were coming onto the full board. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, some of the some of the ways that I've seen that overcome is obviously the sharing of papers, um, but also presentations at the beginning of an audit committee meeting by the principal. Which actually, attending as an auditor, I find that really useful as well. Um, you know, from from that point of view. But yes, but we've talked about co-opted members. I think audit committee members do also need to remember they are full trustees. So they, so whilst the audit committee at one level is slightly apart from the from the board in terms of fulfilling its scrutiny role and independence. Most of the members will be full trustees, so do still have that joint and several responsibility as trustees and governors of the college. Very difficult for them to manage that independence and objectivity at times. Yeah, and it's about having that division as well, isn't it, between members of the audit committee and members of the finance committee. Mm. Um, maybe I don't know if you can maybe say something about how we can manage that. Yes. So I think there's different ways of doing that. And it's something, again, that I've been discussing with the sector. And I think the sector itself is discussing quite a bit at the moment in terms of liaising with other committees and cross fertilization of members across committees of the board. So I think the Audit and Finance Committee is a really difficult one because there are some very good reasons why they ought to be separate. Where there is increasing liaison and joint and sort of cross fertilization is, is around quality standards, um, some of the other committees and what you find and I think that is good because what the role of the audit committee is about is about risk management it's not but it's not about managing the risks itself it's about having assurance that other committees who own the risks are managing them so if you've got audit committee members who are on another committee that can help them in their audit committee role bringing that knowledge over yeah. or you may actually just have them attending um, another committee to get that information and bring it and bring it over as assurance into the audit committee. So I think that will work with some of the other committees. The clear distinction with the finance committee is is a difficult one because the skills are similar. So you can actually see how your one accountant on the board would be yeah. really useful in, in both committees. Um, but it is important to keep that separate as much as you can. What we often see is a joint meeting at the year end so actually, when the accounts are being considered, one committee would sort of have start their meeting, then there would be the joint com- meeting, and then the other committee would effectively end their meeting. So that each committee did have some time on its own. But in terms of the presentation from the auditors, the challenge of the auditors, the finance director, etc., that was done together in the middle. That sounds like really good um, good practice, Stephanie. Thanks, thanks for sharing. And if we can then perhaps move on um, sort of around frameworks, um, if you could maybe give us some insight as to, to what audit committees can use in that regard. Well, I'm, I'm quite a strong advocate of a board assurance framework. Um, and what I'm really meaning there is an, a framework which links the college's strategy, particularly its, and then down to its strategic risks, and then is looking at their strategic risks, what the causes of those risks are, what controls the college has got in place, to mitigate those risks, but then more, but then not stopping there, because quite often if you've just got a risk register, a risk register would stop at that point. Um, by turning it into an assurance framework, what we're then saying is, and how does the board, through the audit committee, 
know that actually those controls are working and are really mitigating those risks. And in terms of and sort of taking that a little bit further, in terms of some of the things that we're looking at, we often talk about um, three sources of assurance or three lines of defence um, in the language that we use there. So what you've got so- there is you've got the college itself um, in terms of its day-to-day operations, actually just by carrying out the processes and implementing the controls, is there as a line of defence against against those risks. And if you sort of put that into, say, for example, an HR context, you've got staff carrying out one-to-one reviews, appraisals, that's part of your process, and that is a control over staff performance, staff retention. Um, then taking that through in terms of the second line of defence, which is about oversight at the college level, if you've then got HR reporting that through to the appropriate committee of the board, you've got board scrutiny that that is happening, that that is taking place. And then the third line of defence is where you've got independent review external to the college, um, which could be internal audit, looking at that whole process. Um, but one of the things I think it would be helpful to add is that that third line of independent review doesn't have to be internal audits. If we move on then to talk about risk, because you've just spoken about risk there, um, and we hear a lot of colleges talking about new risks, you know, such as cyber, sustainability, etc. What What's the board's role and particularly the audit committee's role in regard to risk management? Right. So if I start with the board first, so it's the role of the board to approve the risk management policy for the college and also to set the risk appetite. And that's an interesting one that, again, over the last year, we've spent quite a lot of time discussing with with colleges and our other education clients as well. So risk appetite is really about how much risk you're prepared to tolerate how much, or and how much risk you might actually want to take. Because at some point we do actually have to take a risk to take to take an opportunity. And it's important that the board has a collective understanding of the risk appetite of, of the organisation. And what we've certainly found during the pandemic was that all organisations changed their risk appetite during the pandemic. And they might not have realised, but actually by, by moving to remote working, by probably maybe having to reduce levels of delegation or reduce the numbers of signatures required on documents, etc. Organisations were taking more risks and effectively increasing their risk appetite. And that's absolutely fine as long as that was done knowingly. But it's actually, so it's about thinking about that risk appetite and it may be different appetite in different areas. Um, It's very much at the board level for for doing that. Um, The board should have an awareness of all of the strategic risks of the college. And when I'm talking about strategic risks, I'm probably talking about your top 10 risks. And that's, that is the question we're often asked, is actually in terms of the risk register the board is looking at, how many risks ought to be on there? And we're really talking about the top 10, you know, the rest are dealt with operationally. Um, but in terms of the role then of the audit committee, so the audit committee, I would not expect to own any of the risks. And I think that's a key thing that may sometimes be missed. The audit committee doesn't own the risks. What the audit committee needs to think about is the process um, over, over of risk management and having assurance that risks are being, being managed. So I think the audit committee needs to approve the risk insurance framework that's put in place. So that's part of the board assurance framework you know, that, that we've been talking about. 
and then monitors and receives assurance that that is being operated properly, the ongoing operation. Um, and that that monitoring and receiving assurance then is really the bread and butter of the audit committee. It's about what it's getting from management. It's about what it's getting from other board committees. It's about what it's getting from then independent third parties, um, which, as we've said, could be your internal auditors, your external auditors. Um, it could be Ofsted reports, other reports as well, though. It's then considering those, putting those together. Is, is anything missing? Um, is, is the process working? And I think one of the things that, again, that we did there that helped us understand the process and have some assurance over the process is that we had a programme of managers come and talk to us about how they identified their risks for their risk registers. So these weren't strategic risks that would normally be reported to us, but it was actually about their process of what they were managing locally and then how they defined the strategic ones which were coming through and being reported through to the board. Um, and then, of course, the audit committee has to give, as we've talked about, the annual opinion and the annual report to the full board. So it's about pulling that together. And again, that's where they do need the government's professional support, you know, in terms of bringing together what they've looked at in the year and starting to put those papers together. Oh, that's some really practical and helpful um, tips there, um, Stephanie. So I'm guessing this is an area where the committee can at times move into the mode of foresight rather than oversight mm -hmm. or hindsight, where audit um, and risk can be used as a sort of a strategic mechanism to address opportunities. Do you think sort of committees and boards are doing that enough? I think probably not. It's easy to think about audit as being the area that looks for what's wrong. Um, but it is important, you know, it is very much important to be strategic and look forward and to think about opportunities, definitely. So with regards to sort of the services that we've already spoken about regarding internal and external auditors, how can sort of boards and audit committees maximise the benefits of having these services? You know, what should board members be asking them? But things they might want to ask the auditors as part of the sort of business as usual, as it were, um, in terms of audit planning, have a meeting with with them. So before, the, you know, and I think it depends where in the process, but ideally before the formal audit plan for external audit or internal audit goes to the audit committee, um, the chair of the audit committee to have a meeting with the auditors uh, as to what their concerns are, how they see the risks, what areas they want looking at, particularly in internal audit part of that conversation isn't it mm. that we try and have time um, between the the, the non-exec or the independent governors as we call them with the auditors without management present that would be good practice would you say absolutely good practice and I would, and I would add to that even if you as an audit committee don't think you've got anything to discuss with the auditors please still have that time because they might have something they want to discuss with you um, but then in terms of other questions and asking your auditors, Certainly upfront and in the upfront up planning is actually understanding what the audit risks are that are particularly key to the, the external auditor, talking to them about materiality and what level of materiality they're, they're working to, and understanding that in terms of the depth of reviews that they are going to be doing of, of any numbers and systems. Most college auditors will be auditing a number of colleges, so actually make use of them and use them to give you some benchmarking around some of the softer things as well. And we know that Board behaviours um, and boardroom culture are key to effective governance. I wonder if you could share some elements of this that you believe are important for the effective functioning of the audit committee. So 
I think it's going back to the traditional role of a public sector audit committee in some ways about it being about scrutiny and having an element of independence and arm's length from operations and from from some of the other operations of the, the board as well. So very much about keeping that independence. Um, but in line with that keeping the independence as well, is actually thinking about length of term of office. Um, it's not good to have too long a term of office. And that, I mean, that applies to so many things because we look at that in terms of how long somebody can be on the board anyway. Um, as audit firms, we also look at that in terms of how long somebody can be your external audit partner. Um, so certainly look at that in terms of your audit committees as well. Um, maybe have some committee rotation or look at length of terms of office there. Then I think anything that the committee, norm, normal committee operations in terms of being effective with your timed agendas, you know, cover papers so it's very clear um, where things are for approval, where they're for noting, um, flagging risks. So one of the things that I find quite useful is actually to flag the risks at the beginning of the meeting. If there are areas being considered where there are specifically risk areas, flag them at the beginning of the meeting, go through the business of the meeting, then just go back to the risks and say, have our risks changed? Um, and, and report those back up. I would then say, thinking about the members of the audit committee, um, how are they performing? Are you giving them appraisals? How are they working together? Is everybody taking part? Is Are there some people who are too dominant? And then the biggest thing is about holding management to account, reporting to the board, warning the board if there's something that the audit committee feels isn't quite as it should be. Thank you, Stephanie. So if our listeners want to hear more from Stephanie on this topic, she's running, in conjunction with the Association of Colleges, an audit committee automatic class series on the 27th of September and repeated on the 13th of October. Uh, more information can be found on the AOC's event page. So thank you, Stephanie, for joining us on the Governance for FE podcast to enlighten us on the important work of audit committees and for sharing RSM's board assurance framework, which I'll add to the resources on the Governance for FE website. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Fiona. Thank you for joining us on the Governance for FE podcast. Visit our website, governanceforfe.co.uk, where you can find all the podcast episodes and a whole lot more information on governance in the FE and skills sector. This podcast was sponsored by the Skills and Education Group. Information on their qualifications, funding opportunities, professional development programmes and initiatives in support of teaching, learning and assessment can be found on their website at skillsandeducationgroup.co.uk.